Good morning, everybody. I'm Philippa, and I'll be reading from Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 10. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and to find out what pleases the Lord. Thanks, Philippa. So you are waiting with bated breath. What is this guy going to say after Mark's announcement? Um, that is not the, the sum total of what I'm talking about, by the way. So you can relax. You can enjoy yourself. Um, a question maybe to ask yourself, um, or if, if you've uh, sort of reflected on this recently. And the question I want to ask you is, when last did you think how quickly things have changed? How quickly society has changed. I don't know if you've tried to explain to an eight-year-old the concept of a telephone book. You say there's this big book, bigger than the Bible, and it had the names of all the people in the city, and you would page through it to try to find their number. People look at, my kids look at me like googly-eyed, really? Or, or even that there were things called cell phones that weren't smartphones. It's like, and you remember the good old 3310? Come on, that was, the, that was the old favorite, right? Um, so much has changed. Or, or try to explain the encyclopedia. Who had a set of encyclopedias in their home? There we go. I mean, how fast has the world changed? Things have changed so radically over the last sort of 50 to 70 years. And uh, I think nothing quite has changed more than the world's views on sexuality. It's probably been one of the quickest and most radical shifts of all the shifts around sexuality and, and what is viewed as moral and immoral. Paul, in, in verse 3, he talks about, you know, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality. And yet we live in a society that actually often will say, you're immoral if you judge other people. If you have a standard of morality, there's a sense that some people go, that in itself is bigotry. That in itself is wrong. How can you have these standards? And the church is becoming increasingly a, uh, to look like a place of bigotry and, and judgment. It's a fascinating turn how quickly this has happened. We, we go 2,000 years back to this city called Ephesus. I reminded you in the beginning of the uh, series that we started, we're looking at Ephesus and the different writings associated with Ephesus. And this was a city that at the very center of the city was this massive temple to the goddess Artemis. 
She was this goddess of fertility, and really some of the ritual practices that were uh, central to worshiping this goddess was ritual sex. And so the center of Ephesus was also a society that was caught up in a kind of sexual revolution, that was caught up in the conversation of what is right and what is wrong, and this little fledgling church that are a massive minority in the city, the mother city as they called Ephesus are asking questions. What is morality? What is sexual immorality? What do we do? We're surrounded by people who see things so differently. They see things uh, in a way that we, we're now learning as not the way of Jesus. And there's this growing question mark over what does it mean to really follow Jesus with our sexuality? And speaking of the way things have changed, I want to just mention, to give a bit of context, the, the way things have changed over the last uh, sort of 60, 70 years, since the sexual revolution of the 60s. We can't underestimate how much society changed from the late 50s into the 60s. And, uh, and sex increasingly became disconnected from a number of things. Uh, prior to the 60s and the 70s, sex was, was connected to a few things. And then these disconnections came about. First disconnection was the disconnection, uh, sex became disconnected from childbearing and family. This was because uh, a famous uh, doctor uh, by the name of Dr. John Rock who ironically was a Catholic, by the way, he invented birth control. You could take a pill and you wouldn't fall pregnant. And amazingly, this invention suddenly disconnected sex from childbearing. There was this moment, and for a while, this was only available to married people. Only married women were allowed to use this pill. But for the first time, sex was no longer connected to this obvious long-term responsibility that would come nine months later. There was this moment in history where suddenly sex could be about pleasure more than it was about procreation. It was a departure point. The next thing, sex increasingly became disconnected from marriage itself. For every culture, there's been differing levels of this, but for the first time in history, there became this big disconnect between marriage and sex itself. Because suddenly, you had people who, who didn't need to be married to have sex because there wasn't a sense of knowing that you were creating a family. If there's no family, there's no need to think too carefully about the fact that you need to look after this child. So suddenly, marriage is becoming distanced over the years from the act of sex. It's best probably described in the statistics in South Africa itself. We have one of the highest rates of fatherlessness in our country. Uh, in, in the Western Cape, we've got the highest number of fathers per home at about 55% in 2018. In the Eastern Cape, it's 26% of fathers living in the home. It's ast astounding how this, this disconnect has increased. Sex also became increasingly disconnected from male-female relationships. Sex is always historically. You can go back to Abraham, and you'll see that there's always been an existence of sex between the same genders that has existed. But typically, historically, it was kept under wraps. It was a kind of minority. Up until recently, it's become more and more popularized. South Africa was the fifth country in the world to legalize same-sex marriage. And to date, it's the only country in Africa that's legalized same-sex marriage. Notice these, the, the, these kind of distances that are created, these disconnections. 
Fourthly, sex has been increasingly disconnected from love, emotion, and relational commitment. Here you need to think of the swipe right culture, the Tinder culture, whereby there is this increasing ability to simply find a partner for a sense of pleasure rather than finding a partner based on love, emotion, and relational commitment. Donna Freitas writes a book, she says, it's called The End of Sex, How Hookup Culture is Leaving a Generation Unhappy, Sexually Unfulfilled, and Confused About Intimacy. And really the thesis there is simply that most people are delaying marriage for various reasons, mostly in the States delaying marriage because they want to pursue their career, but they still have a desire for sexual pleasure, and so there is this disconnect between actually settling down and getting, uh, finding someone to love as attached to sexual experience, and rather disconnecting that and having an increasingly hookup culture. Statistically, however, Freitas comes to realize, as she'd studied this, that it's leading to increasing levels of disillusionment, increasing levels of, of discontent amongst many people. As she studied students in various universities, she, said she discovered that many students, men and women alike, are deeply unhappy with hookup culture. Meaningless hookups have led them to associate sexuality with ambivalence, boredom, isolation, and loneliness. Yet they tend to accept hooking up as an unavoidable part of college life. This is part of the, the, the kind of increasing disconnections between sex and its original uh, realities prior to the 60s, and, and probably a more biblical vision for what sexuality was. As I mentioned, as these new moralities or these new ways of understanding sexuality have come about, they've come about with a, a strong sense of conviction in those who believe them. It seems like an almost 180 degree turn. And anyone who holds a different view to the, the new progressive view is seen kind of as backwards, as behind, as on the wrong side of history, in need of some sort of psychological rebuke, some sort of repair, is seen as quite bigoted or, or judgy. Probably my question back would be, who really is judging who? Who really is judging who? Hey, the final shift, which is a fascinating one, and I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but there's an increasing shift from uh, sex being disconnected from people themselves. Pornography was the first step in that, but as you uh, move to the sort of South Korea and, uh, and uh, Japan, there's this increasing loner culture whereby there's such disconnections, there's such dysfunction in family that more and more people are building relationships not just with screens, but with actual robots. Can you believe it? Listen to this. Writer David Levy is convinced that it will be legal to marry robots by 2050. I know. I know. Just reading what I've read... He says, homosexual marriage uh, seemed crazy and outrageous 35 years ago, but as it became more common, our attitudes changed. He's convinced it'll happen with robots too. Now, I know that might sound out there, but this has caused some really fascinating realities to happen in our society. And I think this is probably a good time for us to take stock and to realize, and, and I want to speak to you as a pastor for a moment, because... I've walked with so many of you in this room, and I've come to realize that sex is profoundly powerful. 
It's profoundly powerful in two ways. It can be uniting and bonding, and it can create an incredible sense of health in a marriage, but it can also create an incredible sense of brokenness and pain. And I've walked with so many in this space, in this community, who can attest to the, the realities of, of the pain that it causes, whether it's been struggling with abuses that have been uh, previously done upon us, or unfaithfulness in marriage and the pain that it's caused both parties, or to the struggles through identity and, and attraction and all that comes with what it means to, to work out what's going on inside. We are a community who really can attest to the great power and the incredible pain that sex and sexuality can cause. Some might look at me and go, well, what's the big deal? Come on, lighten up, Rog. Lighten up. Sex is just kind of play for grown-ups. But the question is, who hasn't been hurt? Who hasn't got a story of, of pain because of these five shifts? Maybe it's in your own uh, marriage. Maybe it's in your parents' marriage. Maybe it's been in, in just watching the, the pain that's been caused. For some, maybe you're going, no, this is quite new to me. I honestly, uh, that, that stuff I've never heard of. It's fairly fresh. Others, you're going, no, it's getting closer to home. For others, you're going, this is my home. This is where I live. These are the relationships. This is the, the reality of what I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. It's important to realize that the church is not perfect in this. This is not uh, me representing the church coming and saying, you know what, we've got the perfect solution and the perfect track record, and we've got it all right up till now, so just follow what we've been doing. Ronald Rollhauser says it best. He says, the church has always struggled with sex. And he says also, but so have everyone else. They aren't, there aren't any cultures, religious or secular, pre-modern or modern, post-modern or post-religious, that exhibit a truly healthy sexual ethos. Every church and every culture struggles with integrating sexual energy. If it's, not if it's not in its creed, if not in its creed about sex, at least in the living out of that creed. Secular culture looks at the church and accuses it of being uptight and anti-erotic. Partly this is true. But the church might well protest that much of its sexual reticence is rooted in the fact that it is one of the few voices still remaining who are challenging anyone towards sexual responsibility. As well, the church might also challenge any culture that claims to have found, response, uh, have found the key to healthy sexuality, to step forward and show the evidence. No culture will take up that claim. Everyone is struggling. This is a good humbling word. We're not standing on high horses. We're not proclaiming that we've got it perfect. We're standing humbly, doing everything we can to go back to the Scriptures, to go back to Christ, to let Jesus teach us freshly, to be our guide. It's really important in this moment that we don't find ourselves going, you know what, I'm married and I've got a wife or a husband and I've got kids. You know what, I'm, I'm exempt from this conversation because we all walk into this conversation with our own sexual brokenness, with our own sense of our own mistakes and our own distortions that have shaped who we are and shaped our identities. And it can be so profound. I found myself thinking this is a high-voltage topic. I watched a, an electrician uh, was at our house uh, just two days ago, and he opened up the DB box. And I, I looked at him, I'm going, whoa, you are brave, bro. Like, this is, this is high-voltage stuff. 
And then I thought, well, I'm coming up to speak about this. I've got high voltage stuff because this is dealing with the, the high voltage realities of what's really going on inside of us. This has shaped some of our deepest loneliness. This has shaped our body image. Many people look in the mirror and because of our sexual ethos, are, find themselves thinking all manner of disastrous thoughts based on this culture. It shaped our desires, our lusts, our views on aging, our relational and our physical wounds are tied up in this conversation. Our trust issues are often based out of this. And our very identities themselves, I think, are, are tied up in the question of our sexuality. One of the big differences, I think, in the teachings of Jesus to the more progressive views that are sort of adhered to by the LGBTQ plus community and others, I think the, the big difference is that in many ways, those communities are fighting for an identity that's achieved. It's, it's an identity that's fought over. Whereas in the gospel, it's important to understand that it's an identity received. It's an identity that's given by Christ. There's no fighting for it. There's only a resting in it, a receiving of it. And I think it's such an important distinction because so much of this conversation is about who am I and, and what makes me, me. And the identity conversation is where I think so much of this conversation hinges. Maybe consider this. You go back to AD 800 and you've got an Anglo-Saxon warrior. He has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. Living in a shame and honor culture with its warrior ethic, he'll identify with that feeling, right? He'll say to himself, that's me, that's who I am. I will express that. The other feeling he senses is same-sex attraction. To that, our Anglo-Saxon warrior will say, that's not me. I'll control and I will suppress that impulse. Now imagine a young man walking through Cape Town today. He has the same two inward impulses, both equally strong, both difficult to control. What will he say? He'll look at the aggression and the anger, and he will think, that's not who I want to be. I'll seek deliverance in therapy and anger management. I'll see a psychologist. I need to deal with my anger. He'll look at his sexual desire, however, and he'll conclude, this must be who I am. This is an important question that raises as we look at these two characters uh, a thousand years apart and we ask the question, what is happening? What does that tell us about how we develop our identity? Where does our identity get shaped? I think it reveals that we don't get our identity simply from within. Rather, we, in, we receive some interpretive moral grid that we lay down over our feelings and then we filter our feelings through that moral grid and we decide which stays and which goes. It helps us to decide, this moral grid helps us to decide which feelings are me and which feelings should be expressed and which are not me and which feelings I should suppress. It's a kind of grid of interpretive beliefs. It's what gives us our identity, right? Even if our inner depths are feeling contrary, we find ourselves choosing what our, our grid of beliefs cause us to choose. 
Because we need a standard. We need a rule. We need some way outside of ourselves to interpret what's going on. How do we interpret these warring experiences, these emotions that we're feeling? What is the interpretive grid for them? So where does our Anglo-Saxon warrior and where does our modern Cape Town man, where do they get that interpretive grid from? How do you find that? Where do you find it in yourself? Well, the answer is you find it in three places. You create your moral grid from culture, from your communities, and your heroic stories. That's, that's how you create this moral grid. Your, your community is the people around you who, who applaud and celebrate certain things, who, who, makes, who normalize certain things. Your culture uh, is the thing that you, know, you, you look at, whether it's Netflix or every other social media thing that, that either says this is normalized or this is not normalized. This is how you should feel. These are the feelings you should give credence to, and these are the feelings you shouldn't. And we look at our heroic stories and we say, these are the people we should look to. What a massive moment in, in human history when, a, when a, a, a man transitions to believe he's a woman and gets on one of the biggest magazines in the world and renames himself uh, Jenna. Am I wrong? Sorry? Yes, I'll go and roll. That's the surname, eh? <laughs> it's a huge moment in human history. Caitlin, that's the name. Because what happens there is you create a new hero. And the hero shapes what people, how they interpret heroes to be. And that, in turn, creates a grid of interpretive belief. So that you can say no to some things and yes to others. Tim Keller says they are actually not simply choosing to be themselves, talking about identity. They are filtering their feelings, rejecting some and embracing others. They are choosing to be the selves their cultures tell them they may be. So again, what's the big deal? What are you on about, Rog? What are you, does this even matter? Well, if it didn't matter to me, which it does, it matters deeply to Jesus. It matters deeply to Paul. And, and we're in the church, and, and it's in the church that we are trying to find our grid, our interpretive grid for how we believe we should be filtering our emotions, how we should be filtering our feelings, how we should be finding our identities. Jesus spoke so much about sexuality. He had such clear views on this. And so today, I'm not primarily going to ask you to argue with me. I'm going to do everything I can to help you to go argue with Jesus, to look at him as the interpretive grid through which we need to put our feelings, to find our identities, and to work out what behaviors we ought to submit to him. And really, Paul, whom we're reading here, is really just a, an echo of Jesus. He's trying to point people towards Jesus, towards understanding that actually all of us, not one person in this room, don't have some form of a broken, distorted sexuality, that it doesn't matter if you have a kind of stereotypical upbringing and you seem to be attracted to the gender that uh, you know, most people are and you've got a heterosexual kind of identity. That doesn't make you a perfectly unbroken person. We all arrive with a level of distortion, whether it's, uh, in my case, having grown up, being exposed to pornography and having my brain rewired around the, the value of hum humans, especially women, and, and how to uh, or, or how not to objectify people. 
We move into the world with a, with a broken sexuality that we need to find uh, the answers to how do we see this restored? How do we find ourselves finding some sort of sexual restoration? How do we find ourselves being formed freshly? And I want to spend the rest of my time talking just a bit about how sex forms us, how we are formed by this incredible, powerful force called sexuality. How does it form our identities? How does it shape us? You see so often the conversation when it comes to sexuality, especially when it's in the churches, are you saying that's not okay? Are you saying that's not okay? Are you saying that you can't, the churches, and the church basically gets pushed as this bigoted community. And I want to just take a deep breath and say, yes, Jesus has some pretty intense thoughts around this, especially in our generation. But I think Jesus has much more intense care about who we're becoming than anything else. You see, Jesus says to his disciples who are in their own ways broken and misshapen and their hearts are contorted around all kinds of unhelpful things and he looks at them and he says, come, come follow me. And what does he say after? He says, come follow me and I will make you. He's got this desire to form people into his image. And Paul, in verse one of this passage, he says, the whole point of our Christ-likeness is that we are transformed into a people of love who reflect Jesus. And something we don't always understand or realize is that sex has profound power to form us into a certain type of person. Philip Yancey says it like this. He says, sex used out of God's vision has enough combative force to incinerate conscience, vows, family commitments, religious devotion, and almost anything in its path. He's basically going, sex is powerful. It can cause you to make the, the compromises you never thought you would make, but you do it because of a desire that runs deep inside of you, a need for something. And I don't think any of us haven't either been firsthand, at least secondhand victims of the pain and the power of sexual realities in our lives. So the question I want to ask you today is who are you becoming by doing what you're doing and believing what you're believing? It's such an important question when it comes to our formation and to our journey through sexuality because that's Jesus' heart for you. He wants to transform you into his image. He wants you to have a vision for your own life, and that's what Paul is speaking about here. His big line is, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality. But he carries on, and he talks about inheriting the kingdom of God. He wants you and I to be the kinds of people who don't just, as, as Paul uses elsewhere, who don't just sneak into heaven kind of through the flames going, yeah, I made it, Shoo, that was close. He says, no, you, I want you to experience, inherit the kingdom. I want you to know what it's like to live a full-fledged life under the King of kings and the Lord of lords and to know what it's like to glorify him. So I'm not going to point you today too much to rules as much as to the wisdom that's going to shape you into a person that is like Jesus. So who are you becoming by why and what you're doing? There's two basic views to sexuality. The one is a fear of desire. That's the one that I think I grew up with uh, in a conservative Christian home. It seemed like basically if you look at a woman, you might make her, you know, 
fall pregnant. It was like that kind of sense of, whoa, desire is a terrible thing, so you need to suppress it lest you do some really dangerous stuff. The problem with that is that it creates kind of like a forbidden fruit dynamic, so you can't suppress it. You think you can, and, uh, and the whole notion there is if you just suppress your desires, you're going to kind of create holiness, and that should produce some sort of happiness. Philip Yancey tells a whole bunch of beautiful stories on the church's checkered history. There was a season in the church where all 44 holy days, you were not allowed to have sex on those days. The church has historically had a kind of uh, view that is basically fear of sexual desire. Sexual desire is a terrible thing. Push it away. Problem is, is like I said, it creates a forbidden fruit dynamic that makes people do things in the shadows and causes a great sense of, of uh, pain around the edges of society. Yancey says it like this, people think of God as a great spoil sport of human sexuality, not as its inventor. Alan Hirsch gets provocative at weddings when he does weddings and he says this, imagine this, I haven't done this at a wedding, but I quite like it. He says, who invented the orgasm, God or Satan? Of course, his answer is, well, it's God. And so he's trying to provoke people. He's trying to get people to go, this isn't a bad thing. But so many people have become so afraid of, of desire. The fear of desire, if we could just, does not equal happiness. It's, it's, that's the kind of thesis of this side. The second option is that you just follow your desires. Just given, hey, you've all got desires. Let's just let go and enjoy ourselves. Literally, what is the big deal? In this vision, it's kind of desire plus consent. Find someone who's consenting in the same way, and that equals freedom. We just, if I've got a feeling and I want it, someone else who wants the same thing, then that's a recipe for great freedom. We could just do that. Sigmund Freud basically felt like that was the case. If we could find sexual satisfaction, the world would be a better place. So just let go and stop creating all these rules and limitations. They call the, the, the culture sex positivity. Carol Queen writes this book, Real Live Nude Girl, Chronicles of Sex Positive Culture. And she says, sex positive, it's simple yet radical affirmation that we each grow our own passions on a different medium. That instead of having two or three or even half a dozen sexual orientations, we should be thinking in terms of millions. Sex positive respects each of our unique sexual profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us uh, have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual difference and possibility. It's simply a case of, if you've got a desire, follow it. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you have a sexual appetite, you fulfill it no matter what. It's your right, which has given rise to the hookup culture, to the, the fresh expressions of all kinds of uh, mor moralisms that you can't find in Scripture or the teachings of Jesus. Taylor Swift and Bon Iver, I can't sing this song, but they say it like this. I think I've seen this film before, and I didn't like the ending. And you're not, you're not my homeland anymore. So what am I defending now? You were my town. Now I'm in exile, seeing you out. I think I've seen this film before. It speaks of the disillusionment of a society that is learning to just express themselves in any way, but never find a deep sense of fulfillment. This vision where desire plus content is actually reaping its own sense of what it's sown, which is disillusionment. There isn't a deep sense of uh, satisfaction. You see, when you get rid of the creator, you remove the concept of design. When you get rid of design, you get rid of 
purpose. When you get rid of purpose, you get rid of the need for accountability. There's nothing and no one to be accountable to. When you get rid of the need to answer for your choices or give any account for your life, you then remove the fear of any sort of consequences and you remove the fear of consequences, well, God's out of the equation. And the scriptures have this lovely teaching that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. And so what happens is we live in a very disillusioned society who are very confused. There's so much sexual confusion. And so the question I want to put before you as we consider these realities, and and maybe I'm speaking to you, maybe I'm speaking to a, a friend who may listen to this in time. The question I would ask is, who am I becoming by why and what I am doing? Who am I becoming as I participate in this practice? Maybe it's pornography. You know, you kind of go, well, just let your desires, if you've got those desires, it's not hurting anyone. No one's watching. 90% of people in our society, it seems, have uh, or do view pornography. There's pornography in everyone's pockets as we walk around. We're so out of touch with reality, but porn seems to be educating our young people, which is why I'm so glad Mark said, hey, maybe it's better that our young people stay in because it's actually great that we learn from people who actually have something to say that is meaningful. Pornography is causing so much pain to the point that it's not just the church who are advocating against pornography. There are so many organizations outside of the church, most notably the one called Fight the New Drug, who are looking at the effects of pornography on people, men in particular, and looking at how it is rewiring the brain and creating these, these centers in the brain that have such limited capacity for joy outside of the experience of pornography, that it is turning them inside, turning them inwards, neurons that fire together, wire together, and suddenly the brain seems to be looking only for satisfaction in these few things, and it narrows the world. It causes men to lose their ability to love and sacrifice and care and empathize. It changes their views of of, of human sexuality and of women and men in general. It changes our sense of bravery. The same could be asked of masturbation. You see, who am I becoming when I participate in these things? There's nothing in the Bible, by the way, that teaches anything on masturbation. So I'll turn to C.S. Lewis, who talks vividly and powerfully on this question, and he answers the question of who we're becoming as we participate. He says this, For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which, in lawful use, leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality in that of another, and finally in children and even grandchildren, and turns it back, sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and rarely uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls, no, calls for no sacrifices or adjustment, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he's always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly endures himself. And it is not only the faculty of love which is thus sterilized, forced back on itself. It's also the faculty of imagination. After all, 
almost the main work of life, is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided, as all things are to be avoided, which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. Who are we becoming is a much better question. We could look at each incident in isolation and each of our desires and we go, but it's not hurting anyone. But it may most profoundly be hurting who you're becoming. The question could be asked of dating. A very simple and, and, and fun experience for so many people. It was originated in 1914 and dating became popularized in kind of the early 19, uh, 20th century, basically as a way of, you know, getting to know people. And it, it changed from finding a, a partner to finding some entertainment and a way to connect with people. Now, I'm not saying that it's unbiblical to date. Don't get me wrong. But why? What are you doing as you coach yourself to invest deeply and then disinvest profoundly. Invest deeply and disinvest. Let your heart into somebody else's. And finding that is a dangerous place because it teaches your heart something. The question I'm wanting to ask in all of this is, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? Am I becoming a person of sacrificial love like Christ? Or am I just learning to please self and turning inwards into my own little prison? What about living together? Someone once said, cohabiting, it's like subprime relationships. They're designed in a way to fail. Now, I know that this is a harsh comment, and many people, maybe even in this room, are living together and cohabiting, and you're not married, and I want to say, hey, just like every other comment I've made, we love you, and Jesus loves you. And it's so important to realize that this is not a high horse I stand on to look at anyone. The question I want to ask is, what is what you're doing, shaping you into and shaping those around you. It seems so simple, but I think Tim Keller says it better when he says this, when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you're willing to give of yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? And for that, the marriage vow is not just helpful, it is even a test. In so many cases, when one person says to another, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married. That person really means, I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. To say I don't need a piece of paper to love you is basically to say, my love for you has not yet reached the marriage level. I find that so helpful. This is not standing on a high horse. This is going, where does Jesus stand? What is the wisdom of God on this? So as I land, I want to remind us of this passage we've just read, which simply says that Jesus and Paul want us to ask questions of our identity. Jesus, uh, Paul writes in the beginning, and he says, follow God's example. He calls us to imitation, really. That language of follow God's example is to say, in this radically volatile topic of sexuality, would you follow God's example? Would you learn to imitate Jesus, walking as a dearly loved child and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us? But I am aware that this means that we come to a kind of fork in the road. 
Because to follow Jesus is to say yes to his amazing mercy and to say yes to his incredible love. There's, there's not a human in the world that Jesus didn't move towards in amazing love and tenderness. But when he did that, he also called us and he said, come follow me. Come follow me, I've got a way. And then he, he teaches his way. And, and today, I suppose, is a freshly challenging message. But what I want it to be is not a challenging message just to people you know, who maybe aren't married or who aren't in a heterosexual relationship because actually all of us have broken sexuality and all of us need a refresher and a, and a reminder that Jesus wants to restore and redeem all of us. I don't think there's a married man or woman who doesn't need some fresh redeeming. Whether it's the way you look in the mirror and you understand yourself based on the sexuality of our society, whether it's the way that you treat your wife or your husband based on broken versions of sexuality, we all need to find ourselves freshly understanding Jesus best in the area of sexuality. And so we're going to walk this slowly, and we're going to walk it in love, because Paul says, walk in the way of love. I took a big risk standing up and talking about such a high-voltage topic. And so as I appeal and try my best to preach and speak in love, I want to appeal to you to love me as I try to do this and to love each other as we do this, as we try to find Jesus best. Verse 5, it's, he says something hectic. He says, for all that this, no immoral and pure greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He's not questioning your salvation. He's not going, you, you're not going to get to heaven if you, don't, you, know, if, you do, if you make mistakes sexually. He's already addressed them as children of God. He's already addressed them as loved by God. He's not questioning their salvation, says Michael Eaton. He's saying you could miss out on experiencing the kingdom if you choose at this fork in the road to say, you know what? Jesus is the king except here. Jesus is Lord of my life except not here. This one, I'm choosing my own moral grid. This one, I'm choosing my own way to filter what's right and what's wrong. What I want to do is encourage you to find it in Jesus. In verse 8, it says, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Maybe as the band come up, I want to read you what Michael Eaton says. We must notice that Paul does not say, once you were in darkness, but now you are in light. It's not a change of the realms in which they live that he speaks, although the, he could have done that as well. It's a change in the Ephesian Christians themselves that he refers to. He says that once you were darkness, but now you are light. There's been a whole new identity that's been received. They themselves were darkness. They themselves have changed and are no longer what they used to be. The Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world, but they are so transformed so as to belong to Jesus Christ. And the result is that they also are the light of the world. Not only are they in the light, the light is in them and they have been transformed. I think... Jesus would maybe look us today and he would say, who are you at the core? If you're a follower of Jesus, then at the core of who you are, you're not a married woman or a married man. You're not a single. You're not at the core of yourself. You're not heterosexual. At the core of who you are is not who you're attracted to or your gender, not according to Jesus. In so many ways, those will pass. 
At the core of who you are, says Jesus, if you trust in me, if you put your faith in me, is you're a child. You're loved. You're you're a child of God. You are light in a dark world. You're not defined by your sexual desires. You're not defined by your own sexuality. That's not primarily who you are. You have an identity that is received that will outstrip any identity you could achieve in this world. You are light. And the gospel of Jesus calls us today not to look left and look right or to look up and get judgmental, but it's to look up at Christ and realize that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And yet the offer is abundant to anyone who had walked in. And maybe it's a refresher for each of us. Maybe it's a brand new thing for some who are saying, this is new to me. Is this really how good God is that he would give me his his love as a free gift without me doing anything? That's, That's the answer is yes. Might have some big questions, but the biggest question is, have you trusted him? Most people will argue with the church's checkered history and sexuality. But I want to encourage you to look at Jesus. He doesn't have a checkered history. I have a checkered history. We all do. But that's not the invitation today. The invitation is to look at Him and to go, what would you do with Him? Because at the end of our lives, we're not going to face each other and go, oh, well, I didn't because of them. I didn't trust Him because of them. You're going to look at Him and say, I didn't trust you. Why? I don't know. Maybe for some, it's just freshly trusting our own sexuality to Him. For others, it's just just trusting our whole lives to Christ freshly. For others, it's actually bringing those big questions and going, there are lots of question marks. But Jesus was gracious with big question marks. He'll journey with you, and so will we. Nobody's feeling super insecure. We're not going to fight. We're not going to die fighting this battle. We're going to love each other into seeing Christ We're not going to try to win battles with each other. We're going to do what that final passage says. Find out what pleases the Lord. That's the call. Won't you stand with me? It's our privilege to know you, Jesus. We don't come with perfection in our own lives. Most and Mostly we come with a bit of brokenness and a bit of distortion and some questions that need answering. Today we ask that you would coach us, that you would guide us to find your best. We thank you, Jesus. We celebrate, we affirm, God, that you made men and women. We thank you for the gift that we are to one another in this world. We thank you for the gift of marriage and what it means to to create safety and love and to, to create new human beings to flourish in this world in a place of love. God, we affirm today your incredible design. One man, one woman in beautiful, mutual love towards one another. We affirm that. We realize, God, also that there is so much validity in living single and satisfied in your love. We pray, God, tonight, today, that you would coach our hearts into the deepest satisfaction. We don't want to be idolaters, as was warned in the Ephesians, loving anything more than you. Teach us how good your love is that we might 
rightly appropriate all the other desires we feel to realize that it is your love that outstrips all other desire. That is the fulfillment of actually all our longings anyway. Holy Spirit, as Lex reminded us last week, we ask you to coach us. God, this meeting's gone a little longer, but I do just pray that even as we sing now, that you would just coach our hearts in a very high voltage situation and a big topic to coach us to be the light, to be a people of love, to be a people who are filled with your spirit, who don't go into the world judging on a high horse, but go into the world showing Jesus. Would you coach us, Christ, as we sing? We sing together. We sing in solidarity with those who are struggling in a culture that is causing conflict in their deepest parts. We sing together in solidarity with marriages that are feeling uh, in, in, in a difficult place. We, we sing together in solidarity with singles who are facing loneliness and lust and temptation. We sing together with those who are facing all manner of difficulty when it comes to this high voltage topic. And we pray, Christ, as you did all over the Gospels, that you would move towards in love and wisdom, full of grace and full of truth. Bring your truth to bear upon us. We don't want the easy life, Jesus. We want the truth-filled, grace-filled life that leads towards flourishing and your best. Fill us as we sing with your spirit that we'd be a community who walk together well. Let's sing.